My name is Rabbi Daniel Scher. I am here subbing for Rabbi Amy Bernstein, and we are going to learn a little bit of Torah this morning. So we are on Parshat Bamidbar. Who can tell me, just top of your head, what's Parshat Bamidbar about? Numbers. Numbers. Counting. All right. Counting and numbers. Anything else? Anything jump out? Yes, Linda. Wilderness. Wilderness. Okay, perfect. Census. A census. Beautiful. Yeah, so we're counting ourselves in the wilderness, taking the census. Uh, if anyone else has anything to add really quick, because I see some hands go up, throw those different words out there so we can start with this kind of uh, pile of different thoughts as we then kind of sift through and navigate. Linda, what was your thought? Well, I think you've probably said it already, but at the t- time in the desert. Yeah, okay. Being in the wilderness, the time in the desert. Yeah, beautiful. So this portion of Bamid Bar as a whole is about taking a census. And when you zoom into this week's triennial, what you have is conversation primarily about the Levites and about uh, some of who they uh, are and the notion of a job for everyone and then getting into some of the details about what some of the jobs are for the Levites. Now, to really get an understanding of where we're coming from, we actually have to look two verses before the beginning of this triennial. In Numbers 3, verses 12 and 13, which are the two verses before the triennial begins, it says, I hereby take the Levites from among the Israelites in place of all of the male firstborn. The first issue of womb among the Israelites, the Levites shall be mine. So this is after they've left Egypt, after they know that there's a lot of different ideas of the firstborn. In fact, we touched on them last week with Pinyon HaBen and some other ideas. Here, God says, the Levites shall be considered my firstborn. Now, right off the bat, why is that interesting? In the order of the children of Jacob, is Levi the oldest? Is he even the second eldest? No. We've got Reuben and Shimon. We've got people, we've got brothers older than Levi. And so the fact that God starts by saying, this group shall be seen as my replacement of the firstborn is interesting right off the bat, saying that this firstborn thing may never have actually been important. That's very important to me, by the way, because it's one of the hard pieces of reading Torah to me is the notion of earning based on when you're born. And so here we actually have a proof text that we can then push back against any of the previous lessons going all the way back to Genesis in which we see time and time again there being an issue with the assumption of firstborn earning more. And the next line says, for every male firstborn is mine. At the time that I smote every male firstborn out of Egypt, I consecrated that every male firstborn in Israel, human and beast, to myself to be mine as Adonai. Yes. I just had a a thought about the firstborn. Let's hear it. If there's no firstborn, there's no born. Okay. And part of the thing going back to Abraham and Sarah is that God is the power that permits getting pregnant and having children. So perhaps the firstborn thing is not firstborn relative to other people, but maybe firstborn means that God has granted something because there are first fruits as well. A lot of the first, because if there's no first, there's no second. 
There's okay. None. So there's in some way a celebration of first right, a that celebration it's of like first as as birth at all. Sure, sure. So my son, my son is very obsessed with superpowers right now. Uh, you know, ah, maybe it's that he's five that makes him obsessed with superpowers, but he is like obsessed. And one day he asked me, he said, Abba, what's my superpower? And I didn't, I don't like being like, well, you can fly. Cause then he's going to ask me for the next five years to lift him up every single time I see him. And I was going to be too tired. So I wasn't going to make that mistake. And I wasn't going to say that he was super strong. Cause then he was going to start punching and hitting everything. And I was like, I don't want to go that mistake. So I stopped and I said, you know what your superpower is, Levi? My, my eldest son is named Levi. I said, your superpower is that you made mommy and I a mom and an Abba. Before you were born, we weren't a mom and an Abba yet. But after you were born, we were. And this is a very interesting conversation because my daughter immediately said, well, what about me? And I said, oh, no, you continued to prove that we're a mom and an Abba. But Levi, he's held on to that. And so when I ask him today, I say, Levi, what's your superpower? He says, I made you an Abba. And I think that there's something to that idea of the firstborn does change the dynamic. But I think one of the, the sensitive pieces, one of the pieces that I get nervous about in our text is when somehow that means because you're the eldest, you've earned something. Boy. Yeah, unfortunately, this is one of the, those moments where uh, we definitely know what gender was writing the text. Uh, there is, it is very focused on the firstborn uh, male um, yeah, it's, it's an interesting thing. I think this line, I think stating that the Levites are God's replacement to the firstborn notion really does give us permission to look back in Genesis and say, these stories were about an evolving people. They're not about the perfection of family dynamics. They're obviously, they're really more about the kind of learning curve mistakes that are made and, and, uh, trials and tribulations along the way, and that the firstborn belongs in that category. That the notion that uh, when you were born would somehow decipher your your inheritance kind of needs to be stuck in the time of Genesis and not carried through as our laws are more in-depth and more logical and more thought out. Didn't that continue until several hundred years ago? I think it was primogeniture. Oh, I, I believe society made right, the mistake right. of continuing with it, but I'm saying if we read Torah as an evolving text from Genesis to Deuteronomy, and we watch the evolution and depth of thought and law, that we actually see we don't really talk about it all that much in the rest of the text, the inheritance-wise. That really is stories that stick to Genesis. And then we have things like the part of the triennial we're not talking about, which is asking what are you good at? What are you going to bring to society? How are you going to enhance the community? Moses was not the first. And Moses, <laughs> yes, that's right. And Moses was given a different task from Aaron, who was the firstborn. Correct. So the, se the secondborn had something special about him as well in that particular case. There are other non-firstborns that end up being more important than which is I would. I would argue that more frequently in our text, the firstborn is basically they're not the letdown. The story lets them down, right? They're born into you're going to get because you're the eldest. And then time and time again, we learn, no, that's not the case. Correct. I think we, we have it over and over again, right? Uh, yes, Mark, I see your hand is up. You know, um, I, I, uh, 
I really understand uh, and, and very much uh, appreciate what you're saying. I think it's uh, it's something that certainly resonates with me to look at it that way. But just to just to uh, uh, take the other side for a moment and and raise the question about the firstborn. Clearly, the the fact that that is the phrase that's used, the, the Levi's will be my firstborn, indicates that the notion of the firstborn as the heir uh, is at least a very important notion uh, that would be understood. It would be understood uh, from the text that uh, that this is a very special thing that uh, that the Levi's are now going to be uh, the, the firstborn of God. That is that is a fair assessment. The next line, though, that we read, verse 13, I think also gives an insight to whether or not it's a recognition of the firstborn system, or if it's a reaction to Egypt, right? That this is in fact, in some ways, because the firstborn was taken in Egypt, if our people are struggling at times with the unnecessary feeling of violence that 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 brings up in the Exodus story. And so for, I think there's an answer to that, which is those, those, there is a, aspect of our faith that would say the firstborn of the Egyptians then went to God. They, they, they went and joined with God. And so this line, I consecrate every male firstborn in Israel to be myself, to be mine, Adonai, that like that it actually is the Levites will now also serve God the same way all the firstborn Egyptians in some ways served God in finally uh, releasing the Israelites from their enslavement. I'm not actually even saying that I'm that comfortable with that notion. It, it's it's not a comfortable notion to me, but there is something very real to be said uh, in that circumstance. Mm-hmm. The Levites, thank you. Up, the Levites became the schleppers. Yeah, we're gonna get there too. So we're at, we're on uh, Numbers three verses twelve and thirteen and fourteen is where we're at. So. The next three lines I'm going to, uh, or four lines I'm going to read out loud, and that's going to be the subtext, the first piece of, of diving in. And then we're going to step backwards a little bit and look a little bit more about who are these Levites in the first place. So we'll start with the context of this portion. It says, record the descendants of Levi by ancestral house and by clan. Record every male among them from the age one month and up. So Moses records them at the command of God. And these were the sons of Levi by name, Gershon, Koth, and Mirari. So these are the three sons who will become the three clans. And now let's jump in to what they're about. I, I, I read this very interesting Torah study from the Fuchsburg Center. That's a conservative yeshiva out in Jerusalem. And they want to look at a few different pieces of the breakdown of these jobs. The sons of Gershon are going to be carrying the curtains. The sons of Merari carry the flame. And the sons of Kahat, who are the subject of the fourth chapter of the book of Numbers, which we can look at a little bit, carried the sacred objects inside the tabernacle, including bowls and ladles and jars and, and cups. It's an interesting question to start with. The Levites will serve God. And one group are just, as you said, the schleppers. What does it mean to be serving God, even if your action is definitionally mundane? It doesn't seem very uh, filled with glory or excitement, and yet these people are, again, seen as serving God. 
the end of the Parsha is a very interesting one. Go all the way to 420. In the very last verse, we're told that if any of the sons of Kahat were to witness the dismantling of the sanctuary or look upon the sacred objects, they would cease to live. If any of the sons of the group that brings in all the little objects to use actually witness the dismantling of the sanctuary, or they look at the sacred object that they're not told to carry, they will die. Why make the sons carry these objects but not view them? How interesting is that? You carry the object in, but you can't view them. What is the problem with looking at these objects, and why does the Torah so sternly warn against it? So in this piece of text, the, the writer, Alana Kershon, shares the various metaphors used throughout the Talmud that are going to be here to describe the Mishkan, offer an insight into the reason why this group would be told, carry but don't see it. Our Parsha teaches that while the sons of Kahat transported the sacred objects, they could only do so once the objects were properly covered by Aaron and his sons. Each each time the Israelites prepared to travel, the priests enter the tabernacle. They spread blue cloth over the menorah, the firing pans, the oil, the vessels, the altar, everything. And only then the group comes in and lifts them so that they do not come in contact with sacred objects and die. This is a repeated theme in Greek myth that you can't look at something or you'll die. Uh, Eurydice. Yeah. With looking back. And then we have the burning bush in our own history. You can't look at things because of the power of that glance. Let's think about Moses when he asks to see God's face. Yes. And God yeah. says, I, I can't do that. I'll and show in you fact, the back of my neck. Glances looking at some things are very powerful. And we have to be very careful how we use our glances because they have great power. Um some people feel that looking at uh, mirrors after someone has died is a very bad thing to do. A lot of bubamices, but nevertheless, yeah. that idea of not looking is a part of the mythology of every society. Sure, sure. Yeah, Dana. But this this passage also makes me think about you know how we handle the Torah and our intention because our minds wander. And so if you put a practice that really focuses you on what you're doing and the Torah and the community, then um, it, it, it keeps the sanctity of, you know, the Torah and the information in it versus someone who just, you know, goes through the motions and, and picks up all the stuff for the Mishkan and not really think about it. So this tradition is putting in place that idea of, really having an intention with what they're doing. So it keeps it. Yeah. I think there's a strong piece of that. I think on the side of looking, I think there's equally two parts, the potency and power of seeing something and the potency of power of never seeing that something. Sometimes when you see it, the magic is gone. Mm -hmm. right? It's like if you're wowed by magic, and then learn how a trick is done, there's two kinds of people. The people who are even more wowed by the ingenuity and creativity and skill to pull off the magic trick, and the people who say, I really wish I didn't know how that was done. And so there is something to be said for never seeing something 
knowing that it's there, but not being allowed to look at it, I would imagine to some extent, this group from inside of the Levite tribe probably felt incredible power and responsibility to knowing they were caring for something they couldn't see. But there was another group that might have been like, I want to see the thing. The yeah. problem of never looking. Never yeah. bothering to look. Yeah. Keeping our eyes open. 100%. Uh, Mark. You know, um, psychologically speaking, um, vision unconsciously is uh, very closely connected with sexual possession and uh, and has uh, the unconscious meaning uh, at a very primitive level, very deeply unconscious level of sexual possession. And therefore, uh, to look at something is to... Um, in a sense, have great power over it to uh, to dominate it in some way. Yeah, interesting. And, yeah, I, Jody and then David. I know that. Well, I, I've learned that to be of service just really elevates your soul, and so perhaps in this story that God was saying, just learn to be of service. That is how I'm going to elevate you. Um, you know, I, I don't actually want to know Bob Dylan. I just want to hear his songs, you know, and enjoy his writing. I actually don't want to know personally anything about him when he goes to the bathroom. I don't want to know that. I just want to enjoy. Um, and so perhaps that God was just saying, you know, and this is the message here and the moral just learn to be of service. You don't have to see anything. Beautiful. Beautiful. David. No, I'm just wondering, is, have we, should we give any consideration to the possibility that this is kind of the administration and they're kind of pulling rank on each other and, you know, I'm more important than you, so I'm going to do this and you're just the schlepper. So, you know, we're, 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 we're sort of, giving them the benefit of the doubt that they're all very enlightened and very happy with their roles. But is it possible that the Levites, you know, that it, they were sort of divvying up responsibilities and making certain groups more important than others by virtue of their responsibilities? So um, I'm going to answer with yes and hold that thought for what if we have time, a next piece that we'll look at, because I do think there's something very clear to be said about that. We've read other sections where there's very prescribed levels of purity for those that can enter the inner sanctum. And I think that's kind of goes in line with those other, with that level of purity that only certain people can enter. Yeah. Yeah. I, the, the only, that's very true for a lot of the different pieces of the tabernacle and the relationship to these, these divine objects. The issue here is their role is predetermined that even if they were pure, this group does not get to see the objects. And so now I want to pull us back a little bit to what Mark said, because the Talmud actually says something quite similar. And there's this Talmudic discussion about the transport of the Mishkan in the tractate Shabbat. And since the laws governing the labors prohibited on Shabbat are derived from labors related to the Mishkan, we often get to see things about these laws come back in that tractate. And in the context, Rabbi Yishmael comments that the Mishkan, which was covered in curtains that overhung its frame, resembled a woman walking in the marketplace with her skirt trailing after her. This is Shabbat 98b. 
and the Mishkan was like a modest woman, draped in layers of clothing. To transport the Mishkan or its vessels without its covering would be violation akin to exposing a woman's body in public. Now, I want us to read that in the context of the time because I am not interested in regulating what anyone should or should not be wearing. But there is something very interesting to the depth and intimacy that the rabbis felt to the Mishkan and to the tradition and the fact that they actually do connect it, much like you were talking about, Mark, to this idea of is it appropriate to be seeing what I'm seeing and akin to a a sexual nature. And the Talmud in Tractate Yoma relates even further that this is exactly what the Romans did when they desecrated the temple. The Talmud here teaches that when they entered the sanctuary to destroy the temple, they saw the golden cherubs, the keruvim, and they that sat on top of the ark, and they hauled them out to the marketplace. And the Talmud describes them as immediately debasing them, because all who honored her debased her because they had seen her nakedness. That by taking these ritual items into the marketplace, that that was almost a deeper violation when the Romans take the temple, then breaking anything and trashing anything, it was taking these items that had been so carefully guarded, so much so that cousins of the people that got to see them could only move them when they were having blankets over them. Those are the items that were brought out to the marketplace and were instantly exposed. I find it fascinating, it may be a little bit problematic, but I'm going to go with fascinating for now, that we can put so much care and thought and caution into the treatment of objects. Now, I find that fascinating because there are two roads to take when you see a tradition that elevates an item and the care for the item so deeply. The one way is you could easily write it off and say, I wish they would worry more about people than they would about items and objects. Okay, that's fair. We can look at it. We can dive in. Or you can see it as a tradition that was consistently teaching and training people how to care for their community by first and foremost teaching them how to care for things. That's truly a concrete to abstract If you treat things with delicacy and respect, then when you go into someone else's home, you'll treat those things with delicacy and respect. Then you'll realize that those things belong to a person. And by treating the items well, you're actually showing that same level of respect and appreciation for the person. There's a, there's a system in place to an extent, just like when you're raising kids. By the way, at at any age, when you're, when you're raising children, And you have this ability to stop and say, yes, this thing that you're learning right now actually also relates to this. I am so impressed with what you just found in the tractate uh, about the objects in in the Talmud. Mark made the comment some months ago about the Torah being the encyclopedia of the Jewish psyche. And to pick that up, from this passage, and you verified it, just reinforces that belief that the Talmud is really the encyclopedia, or the Torah is the encyclopedia of the Jewish psyche. You know, I I, I like to tell people, and you want the microphone too, I like to tell people that uh, if it's not relevant, we can throw it away, but the rabbis beat the DSM by a couple thousand years. 
Right. And that's the reality. The rabbis, if you really dive in deep, had all kinds of psychologically relevant points and notions that Shabbat, rest, balance, uh, healthy eating, you name it. We, we have it in the text thousands of years before modern day said work-life balance would be a good thing. Right. And that's so powerful. Well, I was just going to note that the objects outlast the people, the humans, the Levites there. So what does that mean? What's the consequence almost, of that? Almost as if the object is the representation of the tradition right. because you can't tangibly grab a tradition. Right. You can't grab the longevity of your people, but you can grab the items that will outlast right. you. So the, the Levites that uh, David was talking about, they might be, you know, have a personal interest in their role, but once they've died, then what happens? So uh, the information in the Torah has put in place a situation that allows... Yeah. Now, from where the conversation is going, I hope we're all following the thread that we started with. What did this group do to deserve to never be able to see the item? But now let's go back to the fact that they are in servitude. Is this really about the group not being able to see the item or is the purpose of covering the vessels to this level of detail to ensure that like the cherubs, they were not desecrated? That to say the people who move them can't see them is a guarantee that you have fully covered them before their transit. So actually, this group in some ways, it's not about whether or not they deserved it, their purity, anything else. It's that their job and the restrictions of their job actually ensure the longevity and sustainability of the emotional belief that they're being held in this moment. That if they can't see it uncovered, there is no way someone else is seeing it uncovered since they're the ones moving it. It's almost a safeguard for the larger idea, meaning that their role is once again elevated. It's not necessarily about the them. It's about the duty. Yeah, Bert. Pulling even farther back, as you talked about before, uh, it seems to me the issue here is specialness or even the Hebrew word kadosh, separateness that there are standards, there are things that are done and that are not done, that don't always have logical reasons that we know. And we happen to live in an age where democracy, you know, it's about, there really are no standards. What are the standards? I mean, any, you know, anything goes Judaism, which I think, you know, that, how do you, that that specialness is anti-democratic. I mean with a small d. <laughs> I don't mean politically. But that specialness, the special day, the special objects, the special people, that somehow that's wrong. And as, quote, moderns, we have a problem with that idea that I think the ancients didn't have. It's all part of the same, for me, it's all part I, of the same yeah. thing. There, you look at Adav and Avihu. They died because they had alien fire that was not, somehow it was not right. It was not special. So I think this is part of the specialness that we as moderns have difficulty with. And yet the text actually supports and endorses our problem with it as well, because this group doesn't get a land inheritance. They don't get the same level of stability. And if the temple falls, what happens to their 
their livelihood, their support, their home, their safeguard. Remember, everyone brought sacrifice and half of the sacrifice was the meal for the Levites. They were dependent. We call them special, but in some ways we tied their hands behind their backs. So it all depends on the perspective that we want to take. So again, this is from, from Torah Sparks, this piece from Fuchsburg Center of, of Conservative, the yeshiva. And, and Alana goes one step further here. She projects this against a body on the operating table. When not being operated on, the body is living, breathing, and pulsing, and everything is working and energizing and flowing together. But when a patient has been um, given anesthesia and the body is lying calmer, the surgeon presumably focuses not on the whole person, but on just the spot that they're going to make the incision. In fact, they cut a square out of the blue cloth and lay it down so that the only thing that's being focused on in that moment is just that piece, almost detached from the rest of the body, so that the patient isn't, that the, the, the surgeon isn't thinking about the patient as an entire whole in that moment. Of course, they're still concerned with that, but they're really focused on the small square, the abdomen, the knee, the whatever it is, the small square that goes over, and that becomes the focus. By dehumanizing just a little bit, and I don't want to get too far with that notion, but by dehumanizing just a little bit into a square, the surgeon is able to keep it as a skill and not the same kind of weight of operating on the body. So now go back to the Mishkan. By covering the Mishkan when its parts are dismantled, we preserve the sanctity of the whole the same way. When the Israelites were encamped and the Mishkan was up and running, it was pulsing and the sacred rhythm was thriving and anyone could could feel that energy. But when the Mishkan was transported, it was easy to just view them as objects. And if you made the mistake in that moment of viewing them the way by necessity we see a surgeon has to, to, but but in this moment, if we just viewed it as a cup, then we would be desecrating the real level that we've elevated these items to by realizing they're part of the Mishkan as a whole. And so again, it was not about whether or not the the descendants of Kahat were worthy or not. In some ways, their role was incredibly important because the sacrifice they made to be part of the, they didn't make it, the sacrifice they were given, to be part of the Levite tribe, but not get that same access the rest of the Levites get, safeguarded all the items so the next generation and the next generation and the next generation could still feel the holiness of them. That's a tremendous burden and one that I think could really shake a lot of people if they were told, here's a job. Your job is so important that we can never let you behind the curtain and to just hold that. So is this, in effect, a method of inclusion instead of exclusion? I think certainly. I think their sacrifice allowed everyone else to be able to keep these items holy because here's the truth. Like we said, uh, Jody, I think you said it. You, you don't want to know when Bob Dylan goes to the bathroom. That That's fair. Um, it's it's awkward when you're in the bathroom next to a celebrity and you're like, I, I'm just, I'm just going to focus on me, right? That's probably the right move. But actually, we actually have the same problem at times. People don't want to know what goes on behind the scenes of any holy space. I mean, truth be told, most of the people here, we know to run a synagogue, there are supportive people who are doing all kinds of important work behind the scenes. 
But sometimes you don't want to know there's a mop bucket. You want the sanctuary to be completely prepared and pristine almost. So that when you walk in that space, you are not distracted by the mundane things that you know good and well are necessary to run it. Because it does take us out of the moment. And this group, this group of Levites were taking on that tremendous responsibility. Any other thoughts from that specific piece of text? I wonder if there is a need for something physical, these objects. Uh, what we have is a vague, unseeable, untouchable notion of the Lord. Uh, and you can't make idols. And yet whether there is a need to have something physical and concrete in a belief system in which to focus on the, the Torah. We kiss the Torah as it's, carry, as it's carried around in the congregation. And whether that's a need to have something like a physical idol is a question important or not. The notion kind of reflects back to me even the conversation that's I'm sure been had on more than one occasion of the origins of different denominations of faith, right? The reform movement at one point says, what do we need this yarmulke for? What do we need this talit for? What do we even need Hebrew for? If we understand the, the big idea behind it, if we hold and safeguard the notion, that's enough. And today, if you walked into uh, a, a liberal seminary, there are plenty of yarmulkes around. And keeping kosher is a conversation that's still on the table. And uh, half of my rabbinical school class wrapped to fill in. Because at some point, saying, what do we need the object for, almost became a, oh, no, you need the balance. In order to maintain the emotional connection, we need the physical reminder. And so that Balance becomes a really important part that I think our tradition, we often look at Torah and think they were imbalanced. They were too far on the keva and not enough on the kavanah, too far on the regiment and not enough on the emotion behind it. But then we see things like this. And I actually think telling the, the tribe of the kahat that they only could move things when they were covered might seem obsessively keva, obsessively regimented, but actually was purely to safeguard the kavana behind the object. And so I, I actually think they were much more inclined uh, to to connect in that way. I saw the microphone move. Do we have a thought? Well, a lot of it gets to specialness and and the idea that somehow ritual is by definition empty that a lot of moderns have. I mean, there's a, I'll give you an example. You were talking about kipot. Uh, there are people who feel that to open the ark at a service, you have to have a talit on, male or female. Why? Because it is showing a specialness. And I think the idea of reminder is built, you were talking about tefillin, the same thing with tzitzit. I mean, what, what does it say as to why we should wear tzitzit so that we look at them and we're reminded of things. We're people. Our brains wander. And sometimes we need signposts. We need physical things to remind us and bring it back. Otherwise, we just float away. And I think that's part of being a human being. Yeah. And, uh, you know, Bert, taking that and, and Lee typed in here, is it not about the connection between physical objects and the idea of what the objects represent to us in our relationship with God? These things all flow together. I mean, Look, tzitzit is a conditional mitzvah. If you do not have a square garment, don't put a fringe on it. 
because you put fringes on square garments. So the actual mitzvah was, if you're going to wear a round shirt, don't worry. If you're going to wear a square shirt, you got to put the fringes on it. We took that and went one step further and said, here's a square item. Now that you have it, you need to put tzitzit on it. So the creation of the talit was that the beauty behind the symbol was so powerful that we added conditions to be able to engage with it more often. But isn't isn't the mitzvah to look at the tzitzit? Correct. Okay, that's why you don't wear them at night, among other things. But but the the idea is you look at them because they're a reminder that we need to be reminded. Right, and it's the same reason in some ways that we say you're not supposed to use walk into the bathroom with them. You're not supposed to sit down on the toilet with tzitzit. Right now, there's a few reasons for that: the desecration of them, the idea of being the, the sanctity of them, and also like. That's not what you're focusing on in that moment. And so you should take that, take that off. Um, but, but this, this idea that the, the meaning is so powerful that we're going to enhance the conditions to need the meaning more often is a show that both the item and the concept behind it have to work in tandem. And so the fact of the matter is we can say all we want that that's something that we learn in modern time, but the text is saying it right here. So I want to move forward a little bit to a question that's always kind of baffled me as we look at the Levites. And it's, who are these Levites? Now, in an article by Professor Mark Lauchter, and I will send the link afterwards for you to have, it's on thetorah.com. They get into these Levites, and he asks, who are the Levites? He says, the Torah describes the Levites as a landless Israelite tribe who inherited their position by response to Moses' call. This account makes uh, masks a more complicated historical process. So here we go. The tribe of Levi in the canonized Torah. In Torah, we have some in Genesis, some in Numbers, some in Deuteronomy. We have this tribe. Like other tribes, they descended from one of the sons of Jacob, Levi, and they're described in the book of Genesis. But unlike those other tribes, however, they're destined to have no permanent tribal territory. Why were the Levites chosen, he asks. According to the biblical narrative, God chooses the Levites to be occultic officials during the wilderness period, as we read. And then in Deuteronomy, it makes even more sense. God set apart the tribe of Levi to carry the ark and to bless God's name. That is why the Levites have received no hereditary portion among their kingsmen, because God is their portion. Now, the connection between the choice the Levites and uh, Mount Horeb make uh, is implied, built in, that the story of sin at the golden calf according to which the Levites were the one group to answer Moses' call of vengeance against the worshipers of the calf. That gets a little dicey. Here's where I find it really interesting. Projecting the origins of the Levites into the past. Most critical scholars see the Torah's explanation as an attempt to explain the origin of a reality which the Arthurs already knew, that there was a landless group of Levites. They were the cultic functionaries. And so the biblical text is actually projecting the origin back on in order to make sense of this. And so then you start to get some questions. The first, a tribe that lost its land. One of the proposed ideas is that the Levites actually lost the foothold of their territory at some point. They may have actually had land and they lost it. And so instead they had to find a living and a social positioning and they readjusted as cultic specialists because every city would need one. It was basically just a second calling. They, they figured out a new way to make things work. And in fact, in the book of Judges, there's a local chieftain that employs a wandering Levite as his personal sanctuary attendant. 
And so there's a group that says this, they actually did not begin without a land, but this was the morphing over. Here's the next idea. And this one gets a little bit more dicey. Another approach suggests that the Levites were originally non-Israelites from Egypt who joined the tribes as they left. Remember, in the Exodus, it says, all who buy into this, all who agree with this, come with and you are part of us now. If you, right? And so this says that as landless sojourners, this group found their place working in the cultic professions throughout all the territories that have been divvied up to the tribes. And scholars fostering this theory point to the fact that many of the important Levite figures identified in the Torah's narrative have kind of Egyptian-y names. The etymologies are a little Egyptian. Moses, Aaron, Miriam, Phineas, Kahat, Mirari. These are not as commonly uh, canonic names as they are more Egyptian origin. And according to this theory, once the Levites began to serve as professionals, they introduced their own story, that of the exodus from Egypt, as a national tale of origin, so that they built into the group. Now, that's a little more speculative. I don't want to start an entire genre of, are the Levites actually not Israelites at all? But there's a power to that idea, too. Because we do say that all were welcome to go if they believed in this Exodus piece. Levites as connected to local cultic centers. This is the third premise. An important clue to the origin of the Levites is reflected in the meaning of the word Levites, which means to connect or attach. Levi literally is one who is connected, one who is attached. But connected or attached to what? So this scholar suggests that it means attached to the local cultic centers. Both archaeology and anthropology suggest that population groups in the early Israel settled around regional shrines and sanctuaries, much so that they could have this communal gathering places. Especially in the northern central highlands of Canaan, that's the really densely populated areas, different communities were bound together by these sanctuaries and their priesthoods. So archaeological evidence places the early phases of society in the late 13th through mid-11th that this was a time when the Egyptian empire lost much of its hold on religion and small groups managed to claim their own land in the hill country, forge new independent economies and systems of religion. And so some of those systems were then elevated, and this was the origin of the Levites as well. Yes. Sorry, I've never heard that theory, but it's it's pretty cool. And um, I'm thinking in support of that, if there was a group that were not Jews, but more on the priest end of things, after the 10 plagues, after having witnessed the miracles or whatever you want to, the play, they're sort of bad miracles, I guess. Um, they're pretty convinced of this God. Character. Yeah, they would have been, if they were spiritually inclined and, um, and, uh, you know, they would, those, the, that, they, it's almost like people converting to Christianity or something, you know, like they're, I'm, I'm, I'm I'm going with this 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 religion. This is a lot. I've seen the light type of thing. That 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 would really support that theory. That there was a um, a, a bunch of priests who were very impressed by what they saw and abandoned their and, and sort of took over and brought all of 
the formality and systems of, of religion with them and uh and sort of um uh found their way into the jewish people i mean it it, it is i mean of course it's speculative but I mean, I can, I mean, you have so many other examples historically of conversions, of similar conversions from one religion to the other, whether it's Jews becoming Muslims or Muslims becoming Christian, you know, like, I mean, it happens all the time. So. And make no mistake, this speculation is encouraged because the Torah is incredibly vague about anything else with the Levites. Like they, they give you what their rules are, but they don't, they don't give a lot of detail into like why. They'd also know how to set up, I mean, they're like, <clears throat> they're sort of, you know, theological carpenters. They'd know how to set up the whole system of hierarchy and temples and, you know, the, you know, all, all the, I mean, if religion is among other things, a kind of bureaucracy, right? So they know how to work that. They know the system. Yeah. Yeah. That, it's really interesting. Does anyone else have a thought? The, sl- the slaves leaving leaving Egypt would not have that experience or knowledge that these... Right, so. but but someone else would. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Again, something worth really thinking about, and especially just giving us the notion that the text is telling us the important pieces, but the speculations that are left, they're supposed to, to allow us to, th- to thrive here. So let's go over another one. Non-tribal Levites and the dedication of sons. We know that the tribes are going to be a necessary component to this story, But now, because again, we're looking more historically speaking, or at least speculative history, that in many cultures around the world, as we already know, the eldest son would inherit the property and the position of the father. This is one of the things that we're saying to kind of straight away from. This was patrilineal uh, descent, right? And the other sons had to find a way to sustain themselves. And so in many cultures, the younger sons joined priesthoods. Because they weren't going to receive the inheritance, they needed to find a way to take care of themselves. And it's not an uncommon in this, like, in different rural peasant type economies. And these children are assimilated into the priest clan at the site, trained in the ritual function, enculturated into the lore, and eventually they are that people. And so one of the other thoughts was that the Levites are no different. That each clan, if they really were to take, okay, here's my piece of land, I have five sons, if they really spliced it into five, each of those five spliced theirs into five, it would become insolvent. There would be no money left for the sustainability of that family. Or you gave one of your kids to the priesthood or two of your kids to the priesthood. And the priesthood was an identity. It was a... It was a system that you you bought into. You were trained by the Levites. You were brought into the Levites, and then you served as a Levite. And whatever identity you were born with was less important than the one you had truly taken on. And it would have probably taken off during times of uncertainty and economic turmoil, right? Families would have adopted the practice of devoting their sons to service to alleviate the stress they faced because they couldn't sustain their family with their own crop and their own flocks. So that during difficult times, which one could see as the beginnings of a system or as there was ups and downs in economy, they would dedicate sons to the priesthood to provide some relief for struggling families. And in return, they had the people to service what they believed was science, right? God is science at this time. I believe God is science today, but that's another podcast. But we, but this is another way of seeing it as the Levites were the safe space for the kids from each family that were, were brought up. And he goes on to look at other things, David's son, Samuel, some other different ideas. Um, it's a really fascinating 
uh, piece of text. You have to be willing to take yourself out of it for a minute, but it does give a lot of real food for thought. This last piece of triennial of Bamidbar really does give us a lot to grab onto. This notion of the Levites sometimes makes people uncomfortable, sometimes makes us feel like this is the part of religion that we're distant from. But in other moments, like today's investigation, I think we see a lot of the safeguarding of our faith for the sake of everyone by elevating the Levites on that uh, journey. A Torah study is always, in my opinion, the most clearly successful when it intrigues you enough that you're going to walk away still trying to figure it out, still realizing there's more to that puzzle. And I think today's study is an example of that. I don't know the answer to the Levites, but I do know that I'm curious about it because often I feel distant when talking about the Levites. And in this situation, on this day, by looking at it in this way, I actually think there's a lot to, to learn about the way in which we bring other people into community and really give them the same credibility and, and truth as anyone else in the community, regardless of where their story really comes from. And I think that's a powerful lesson to be learning.